Mark Batterson, who is a fellow Assembly of God pastor, he shares the story of a man named John Perkins and his wife, Jessie. In 1908, this couple was on board a steamship that was rounding the coast of Liberia. The reason that they were on this ship is that they knew they had been called to be missionaries to Africa, but they did not know specifically where they were supposed to go in Africa. Well, as their ship made its way around Garraway Bay, this godly couple sensed the Holy Spirit prompting them to get off the boat right at that point and to go ashore. Unknown to the Perkins, there was a young man living in that part of Africa named Jasper Toe, who was a God-fearing man. And he knew that there was a creator, and in hopes of making contact with his creator, he faithfully practiced the various tribal rituals, but he'd never heard of the name of Jesus before. One evening, as Jasper was looking into the night sky, he said, if there is a God in heaven, help me to find you. And in reply, and in a voice that he had never heard before, this voice said, go to Garraway Beach. There you will see a box on the water with smoke coming out of it. Then a little box will come out of the large box, and the people in the little box will tell you who I am. Well, Jasper Toe traveled seven days on foot to Garraway Beach, arriving on Christmas Day in 1908. From the shore, he saw this black box floating on the water that had smoke coming out of it, also known as a steamship. And the precise moment is when John Perkins and his wife sense the Holy Spirit say to get off the ship here. You must get off here because this is precisely where I want you to be. When they told the captain they wanted to disembark from the ship, he refused. He said, we are in cannibal territory and the landing would be far too dangerous. But the Perkins insisted, saying that God wanted them to get off the boat right now, so the captain reluctantly put them in a canoe and all of their belongings, and they rowed ashore in that little box. And when they stepped out on dry land, they found this man standing there named Jasper Toe. He motioned for them to follow him, and they did. He took them to their village, and eventually the Perkins learned his language, they started a church in that village, and Jasper Toe was their first convert. Jasper, get this, Jasper eventually became the superintendent of the Assemblies of God for the entire nation of Liberia. And in that role, he helped to start hundreds of churches in that nation. Now this is a true story, and even though it happened in 1908, it is vitally relevant because I believe that God still does these kinds of things today. He speaks to Christians like you and I, telling us that we need to go to a certain place or speak to a certain person. God still arranges divine appointments like this. In fact, let me stop and ask you if you've ever had an experience like that. Have you ever had a distinct impression from God to depart from your planned itinerary? Have you ever had a strong feeling or an inner voice tell you to go somewhere that you hadn't planned on going or speak to a person you didn't plan on speaking to? Well, if you have, if you followed that impression, 
you learned why it is so important to do so because you recognize it as a divine diversion. It is a God-ordained moment. I share the Perkins story with you because in the fourth chapter of John's Gospel, we read something very similar. It's a time when, in essence, when Jesus told his disciples, it's time to get off the boat. It was a time to make a drastic change from the route that they had originally laid out because as God in the flesh, Jesus knew he had an appointment to keep. So I'd like to take your Bibles, turn to John chapter four, if you will. I'll be reading from the New International Version as I have been throughout this entire series. If you don't have your Bible, it'll be up on the screen and you can follow along with me. But John chapter four, verses one through 26. As you recall, last week, we, we, we kind of reversed the order of these two stories. Last week, we talked about the man with the sick child. And I told you we would put off the woman at the well today and that's what we're doing. So we're kind of reversing these two stories because last week was Father's Day and it was a story about a father. But this is a story about the woman at the well. Now Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that he was gaining and baptizing more disciples than John. Although in fact it was not Jesus who baptized, but his disciples. So he left Judea and went back once more to Galilee. Now he had to go through Samaria. So he came to a town in Samaria called Sychar, near the plot of ground Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon. When the Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, you are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? For Jews did not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Sir, the woman said, you have nothing to draw with and the well is deep. Where can you get this living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob who gave us the well and drank from it himself as did also his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, you are right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you have had five husbands and the man you now have is not your husband. What you have just said is quite true. Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshiped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is in Jerusalem. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountainside nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know, for salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. 
God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in the spirit and in truth. The woman said, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. Then Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Just then his disciples returned and were surprised to find him talking with a woman. But no one asked, what do you want or why are you talking with her? Then leaving her water jar, the woman went back to town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They came out of the town and they made their way toward him. Meanwhile, his disciples urged him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you know nothing about. Then his disciples said to each other, could someone have brought him food? My food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Don't you have a saying, it's still four months until harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Thus the saying, one sows and another reaps is true. I sent you to reap what you have not worked for. Others have done the hard work and you have reaped the benefits of their labor. Many of the Samaritans from the town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed two days. And because of his words, many more became believers. They said to the woman, we no longer believe just because of what you said. Now we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this man really is the Savior of the world. Now before we go any further, I kind of want to take a few minutes to establish the setting for this story. The land in which Jesus walked, Israel, was only about 120 miles long from north to south. But within those 120 miles were three distinct divisions of territory. In the extreme north was Galilee, in the extreme south was Judea, and in between those two is Samaria. This is an area um, of Israel that we refer to today as the West Bank. Well, this encounter that we just read about, it began at the conclusion of, of several weeks of Jesus' ministry in Judea, after which he decided to go north to Galilee. Jesus made this decision to avoid a growing controversy. As it said in verse 1, the Pharisees heard that Jesus' popularity had grown to greater than that of John the Baptist, and it was true. Just as John said, remember he said, Jesus must increase and I must decrease. Well, this is indeed what was happening because Jesus was attracting large crowds wherever it was that he went. And due to his first cleansing of the temple that we talked about a couple weeks ago, the Pharisees were now focusing their disfavor not only on John, but on Jesus as well. So it was a good time for him to leave the region so that Jesus' ministry could continue, and it needed to continue because the time was yet, not yet ripe for his arrest and ultimately his crucifixion. Jesus still had a lot of people to meet. He had a lot of places to go before his appointment with that Roman cross, 
and one of these appointments was in that small Samaritan village. And this conversation that occurred at the well in Sychar is exactly why John wrote Jesus had to go through Samaria. Understand that going through Samaria was the most direct route from Judea to Galilee. So anyone would think that he had to go that way. It's a straight shot of about 70 miles. It's about a two and a half day journey on foot. But as I'm sure many of you know, most Jews chose to never go through Samaria. So when the disciples planned out their itinerary, I'm sure that they too would have avoided this middle region of Palestine at all costs. You see, the preferred course, the customary route, was traveling north from Judea to Galilee would be to travel east across the Jordan River and then to go up north, up the eastern side of the river, far enough to, to recross the Jordan River north of Samaria and then enter into Galilee. This route would have taken a total of six days, more than twice the amount of time, with the climate being hotter and the roads not being as nice. Overall, it was a much more difficult journey. And what's interesting is that most Jews chose to take this longer, more difficult route. Why? Because it allowed them to avoid Samaria altogether. The reason for this was because there had been a constant feud of sorts going on between Jews and Samaritans for centuries. It began back in 722 BC when Israel fell to the Assyrians. The Assyrians, they were known as nation conquerors. It's what they did best, and they did it all the time. However, conquering a country is one thing, but making it stay that way is something totally different. So to keep the nations that they conquered subjugated, they forced most of the local population, especially the leaders, to move far away. And then what they would do is that they would replace them with people from one of their other conquered lands. Well, that's exactly what they did in 722 BC. They sent foreigners into Israel to replace the so-called upper-class Israelites who they had deported to Assyria. Well, these aliens, these new residents of Israel, they intermarried with the remaining so-called lower-class Israelites, and their children, their descendants, became known as the Samaritans, the Samaritan people. But only after 70 years the Jews returned from captivity. And when they arrived home, they declared these Samaritans to be traitors, to be unclean, idol-worshiping people. They called them half-breeds, who arrogantly presumed to share a spiritual inheritance with them as God's purebloods, as God's chosen people. In fact, they hated the Samaritans so much, get this, that some of the Pharisees prayed that no Samaritan would be raised at the resurrection. And when they wanted to find a bad name to call Jesus, because they were constantly calling him bad names, they'd call him the worst thing they could think of. What would that be? The Samaritan. But you've also got to understand that these feelings were mutual. 
The Samaritans hated these Jewish blue bloods as much as the Jews hated the Samaritans. They resented the return of the Jews so much that they opposed the rebuilding of Jerusalem as well as the rebuilding of the temple. You see, they had built their own temple on Mount Gerizim. The Samaritans even had their own version of the scriptures, which was limited to the first five books of the Old Testament. They had actually rewritten these books to present their distorted view of Jewish history. For example, the Samaritan version of the scriptures said that Abraham's near sacrifice of Isaac took place on Mount Gerizim and not on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem where it actually happened. Here's another point of interest. Whereas the Jews would never travel through Samaria, the Samaritans did not mind if the Jews went through their land as long as they were traveling northward from Judea like Jesus and his disciples were doing. But the Samaritans did resent Jews who traveled southward from Galilee toward Jerusalem because it was where that their temple was located and they didn't want them anywhere near their temple. So there was this long history of hatred and competition between the people of these two geographical regions within the same land. Best you could describe their relationship, I think, would be settled hostility. I share this with you to help you to understand that when John wrote that Jesus had to go through Samaria, he didn't mean in the sense of geographical convenience. Jesus didn't have to travel through Samaria. He could have followed the footsteps that most Jews had taken and gone around the region. In fact, I'm sure his disciples wish he hadn't done just that. He had to go through Samaria because Jesus had a divine appointment to keep. And I believe this appointment, this famous conversation between Jesus and and this woman at the well, is in the Bible for a very important reason. A lot of people take this story and they talk about her salvation, which is an important part of this story. But I want to talk about this uh, encounter that Jesus had with this woman because it serves to me as a perfect template for the kind of conversations that we tend to have whenever we are following the Lord's leading. Whenever we do take those detours that he asks us to take. Whenever we depart from our plans and encounter people like this woman at the well or like Jasper Toe in in Liberia, when we encounter friends and when we encounter neighbors and family members and even when we meet total strangers who are seeking God, when we obey God and enter into these encounters that he sets up, what happens is we will always experience a sense of fulfillment that energizes us in literally amazing ways. Remember when the disciples left the, when when they left Jesus at the well, he was exhausted. But when they came back, he was energized. In fact, they thought someone may have brought him some food and water. His response in verse 34 was, my food, said Jesus, is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Listen, if your walk with Jesus Christ is anemic this morning, and if you feel like you have a lack of purpose as a Christian, 
It could be due to the fact that you aren't paying attention to God's course directions, redirections in your life. And because you're not, you're missing out on that God-given energy that comes from these kinds of interactions. And you know, we of all people need to be acutely aware of something pertinent regarding this whole thing. Current statistics tell us that of all the states in the United States, California is part of what is called the unchurched belt. You know, you have the Bible belt. We are a part of the unchurched belt. California, Oregon, Washington, and Nevada have the highest numbers of what are referred to as unchurched population. So I would say that there is a very good chance that God might regularly invite you and I to get off the boat one day, to depart from our plans, to depart from what it was that we had decided we were going to do, and to talk to someone who does not yet know Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. And so as we talk about the principles of, of getting off of this boat by listening and responding to the Holy Spirit's direction, there are a few principles that I believe we need to talk about that are very real, and I want to share them with you this morning. And the first one is this. Our motivation for sharing our faith must be love. It has to be love. I mean, we are not going to get very far at all if we share our faith out of guilt or out of duty. And that's what a lot of people try to do. If we follow Jesus' example, we are to witness out of a heart of love that breaks for lost people. Remember, nothing, absolutely nothing in all creation matters more to God as people do. Sinful, fallen people like you and me. In spite of our sinful state, in spite of our sinful actions, in spite of our constant rebellion against God, God still loves us. And he longs for us to love him back. That is why Jesus came. He came to seek and to save the lost. Lost people like this woman at the well in Sychar. And he came seeking her because of his great love. Now don't misunderstand me this morning. I'm not saying that Jesus closes his eyes to sin. The fact that he is perfectly holy and sinless makes him even more sensitive to sin than you and I ever could be. But when Jesus looks at your life, and when he looks at my life, when he looks at anyone's life, he lovingly looks beyond our sinful behavior. He sees us not as filthy sinners, but he sees us as his precious creation. He sees us as priceless treasures that have been lost he sees us as his children who he loves and who he yearns to get back. And in spite of the fact that each one of us bears scars from our own sinful choices and decisions and in spite of our brokenness, he loves us. And that's got to be the same way that we look at all people if we are to lead them with Jesus. We must allow our experience of God's grace to empower us to look beyond people's attitudes, to look beyond their actions that we, don't dis that we disagree with, 
Sometimes even to look beyond their appearance that we don't get. And we must start to see them as as human beings that matter infinitely to God. Please hear me out. I am referring to all people. I'm referring to mean, selfish, hateful, unlovely people. Our hearts must break for them, just as God's heart does. I love the lyrics to that song that we sing. It says, break my heart, God, for what breaks yours. That must be our prayer. That's got to be our mindset. Because our witness is going to be totally ineffective unless they sense the love of God in our words and in our actions. Let's get back to our story. About a half mile outside of the town of Sychar, at the foot of Mount Gerizim was Jacob's Well, a famous uh, water source, and it's a very historical place. It's first mentioned way back in Genesis chapter 33, and it's located on the land that Jacob had bequeathed to his son, Joseph. It was in the same land where Joseph's bones had been buried after being brought back from the exodus from Egypt. Jacob had probably dug this well himself, and it became a watering site for that region. And he must have done a great job at it because that well is still used today. People still drink fresh water from Jacob's well. Well, verse six says that Jesus arrived at Jacob's well on or about the sixth hour, which is about 12 noon, which meant he would have been tired from several hours of travel. So the disciples left a weary Jesus resting by the well while they went into town, into Sychar, to purchase some food for their midday meal. John infers that they probably had been gone only a few minutes when this woman from town approached the well carrying a a large water pot on her shoulder. Picture this scene, if you will. The pot was empty, but in my mind, she probably carried it like it was full. I think her features were hard, with her eyes looking like dark sockets of weariness. It's even possible that Jesus' disciples had contributed to her weariness by giving her a taste of that Jewish hostility when they passed her on her way back into town. I'm talking about a very common look that the Jews would give the Samaritans that would say, we're disgusted with you Samaritans. Or maybe they added to her weariness by failing to yield to her on the path and forcing her off the side of the road as they went by. I don't know. But this is how the Jews treated Samaritans. So imagine how she felt when she arrived at this well and saw from all of his garb laying there another Jew just sitting there. She must have been thinking, what in the world is going on? There's sure a lot of Jews around here today. This would have been a surprise to her because as I said, Jews avoided Samaria like the plague. And if that wasn't shock enough, Jesus actually spoke to her going so far as to ask her for a drink of water. She replied basically with a tinge of sarcasm in her voice that said, you're a Jew speaking to a Samaritan woman and you have the audacity to ask me for a drink. 
As John's little parentheses in verse, verse nine reminds us, Jews did not associate with Samaritans, especially female ones. In fact, there was a, a, a law, a, a rule for Jewish men that stated this, a man shall not talk with a woman in the street, not even with his own wife. Here's another one. The daughters of the Samaritans are menstruants from their cradle. He that eats the bread of the Samaritans is like the one that eats the flesh of swine. And yet, as I said, Jesus not only spoke to this Samaritan woman, he asked her for a drink of water. Think of it. He requested that his Jewish lips touch the container from which Samaritan lips had drunk. And I am certain that she was shocked at this request. And that leads me to mention another principle of evangelism on display in this encounter. Refuse to allow barriers to keep them from lost people. I say this because with his request for water, Jesus broke through several barriers. He broke through cultural barriers, religious barriers, gender barriers. Some would say he even broke through moral barriers because this was obviously what they referred to as an immoral woman. This is why some people referred to her in those days as, in times past as the bad Samaritan in comparison to the good Samaritan story we find in Luke. But that's not the way that Jesus thought of this immoral woman. His great love for lost people like her would allow nothing to keep him from her. And if we are to be effective evangelists, we must be barrier breakers as well. In fact, let's pause for just a moment and let's do a little bit of a self-examination and ask ourselves some questions. What barriers have I allowed to develop between me and people who don't know Jesus? Do I treat people of a different ethnicity or culture with disrespect? Do I think or act less Christ-like around people who vote differently than I do? Do I withhold loving ministry from people who disobey God when it comes to their sexual behavior? Am I so busy that I have created barriers between me and lonely and hurt people who live next door or across the street or who I work with? Is there any kind of a person that I look at and I see anything other than a lost human being that Christ died to save? Listen, church, if we want to leave, lead the lost to Jesus Christ, we must maintain contact with lost people. We cannot isolate ourselves from them. You see, when we do that, when we live according to this barrier-building philosophy, we repeat the sins of the religious Jewish leaders. If you will recall, they condemned Jesus for associating with sin sinful people. Do you remember our Lord's response to their criticism? He said in Luke 5, 31, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. In Jesus' last prayer, before his arrest and subsequent crucifixion, he said these words in John 17, 15. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. 
They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. In other words, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. We are to separate ourselves from the sinful practices of this world, but not isolate ourselves from lost people. A surefire way to stop the spread of the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to build barriers and isolate those who carry its message from those who desperately need to hear it. Even the first century Christians apparently dealt with this same misconception. And it was the reason that Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 5.9. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. Not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I am writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, meaning a Christian, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or slanderer, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such people. Paul was saying, the sinners that we should avoid are Christians who insist on rejecting our loving correction and continue to embrace a sinful lifestyle in an unrepentant way. The fact is we must realize that separating ourselves from those who do not know Jesus Christ is outright disobedience to the will of God. We need to follow Jesus' example, and we need to break through those barriers so that we can make contact with lost people who cross our paths, with lost people who are daily in front of us in our lives. Let's move on to verse 7. Jesus asked the woman for a drink of water. And what follows shows a third principle on display in this encounter, this divine appointment. Sinful actions usually reflect a person's spiritual needs. You see, in a misguided attempt to satisfy our need for God, as human beings, we wells of this fallen world. But as we know, those wells never, ever satisfy. We see an example of this here because as Jesus noticed, this poor, poor woman was thirsty for more than water. She not only had an empty water pot, she had an empty life. And if we had grown up in that culture, we might come to the same conclusion. Because most women used to go to the well in the early hours of the morning, in the cool of day. But not this woman. She came to get water in the evening. So it was easy to see that she was an intentional loner. She chose to come to the well at the end of the day in order to avoid the other women who no doubt ridiculed her lifestyle. It was a lifestyle built around her trying to satisfy her spiritual thirst at the well of sexual immorality. J. Vernon McGee wrote this. He said, one of the reasons this woman was so unpopular with the women of this town is that she was so popular with the men. In his omniscience, Jesus, of course, knew this. He knew that she had been married five times. 
She had gone from one relationship to another. And now after five empty marriages, she comes to the conclusion, what use is it to even go through all the formality of marriage? And she just moved in with another man. But even this failed to satisfy the longing of her soul for something more. And understand there are people like this all over the world. People who have drunk from the wells of this world and are still thirsty. Jesus referred to these people in their sad lives in verse 13 when he said this, everyone who drinks this water, meaning the water from that physical well, will be thirsty again. And King Solomon was one of them. He drank from many wells from the world. Remember, he drank from the well of wealth and it did not satisfy the thirst of his soul. He, he tried the well of pleasure. That didn't satisfy him either. He, he, just like this woman, he tried the well of lust and it just left him thirsty. That's the way sin is. It's like a drug. The more you use, the more you need. It's always gotta be go to the next level. It never, ever satisfies. Drinking from the wells of this world is like eating salty snacks. In a couple hours, you're gonna want, you're thirsty again. Well, God referred to this in Jeremiah 2.13 when he said this, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. Did you know that our bodies are made up of about 80% fluid? That means a person my size lugs around about 160 pounds of water. I like what Max Lucado wrote. He said, apart from brains, bone, and a few organs, we're, we're all walking water balloons. <laughs> so as water-based creatures, we need water. That's the way God made us. In fact, just like a gauge on our car's dashboard, we have a built-in low fuel indicator. If we don't get enough water, our body's gonna tell us about that. Dry mouth, thick tongue, Achy head, weak knees. Deprive the body of fluid and your body will tell you. Likewise, we also have a soul and it has an inborn need. And that need is a thirst to know God. And this inner longing often manifests itself in our outward behavior. Max Licato also wrote this, dehydrated hearts send desperate messages snarling tempers, waves of worry, growling mastodons of guilt and fear, hopelessness, sleeplessness, loneliness, resentment, irritability, insecurity. These are all warning symptoms of a dryness deep within. Well, Jesus saw this sinful woman's actions as an indication of her spiritual thirst, her spiritual need. He knew what she had not yet realized, that her lifestyle choices showed that she had a thirst and a need for God. In fact, King David describes this in Psalm 42.1 when he wrote, as the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. Christians who are effective in sharing their faith recognize this. They realize that when they see an individual who embraces sin, they are seeing somebody who is ultimately and deeply thirsty for God. 
They know that when people are lonely or angry or rude, it's like a warning light flashing on the dashboard of their car. It's all an indication of the fact that they need what Jesus offers. The wise remember that Jesus is is as necessary to spiritual life as water is to physical life. They remember when they accepted Jesus into their lives. Well, he came in, and when he did, his spirit poured down their throat of their souls, and it flushed out fears, and it, and it dislodged regrets, and it filled us with, with a deep satisfaction and a lasting peace that cannot be shattered by the events that go on in this world day after day. Just like what Peter said in his sermon on Pentecost Sunday in Acts 3.19, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out, that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. Here's one last principle of evangelism that we can see in this encounter between Jesus and the woman at the well. There always comes a point when we must move, when we must confront people with the truth of Jesus. Remember, our goal is not just to tell people about Christ, but it is to lead people to follow Christ. Jesus has commissioned us to go out and make disciples of all people. Well, in verse 19, this thirsty woman, she attempted to avoid her decision. What she tried to do was to divert Jesus from the matter at hand by discussing the Samaritan people's version of the Jewish religion. Like a fish on the line trying to break free and get off the hook, she brought up this this dispute between the Jews and the Samaritans that has been going on for hundreds of years. But Jesus refused to let this happen. He knew it was a time for her to make a decision. So when she mentioned the prophesied Messiah, he said to her in verse 26, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. And in essence, by saying that, he drew a line into the sand. She could refuse to believe, or she could decide to receive Jesus as Messiah and Lord. She could reject the living water that he offered, or she could drink from it. Well, the same kind of moment will come in our divine appointments that we have with other people. There will come a time when we will lovingly have to confront another person with their need to make a decision. One way that we know that that time has come is when they try to divert us from making the decision, just like this Samaritan woman. They may try to stir up a dispute about the existence of heaven or hell, or or, or whether miracles are real or not, They may try to avoid their decision uh, by posing an intellectual or a theological question like, why all these different denominations? I just don't get it. They confuse me. They may even try to talk about a relative who was religious in, in some kind of a weird way and other things like that. They do this because it is more comfortable to discuss religion than it is to face our sin. And in these times, the Holy Spirit will often tap you on the shoulder and will tell you that it is time to lovingly confront this person and their need to respond to the claims of Jesus Christ. This time will come because people can't experience the living water until they choose to drink it. You can stand knee deep in the Sacramento River and you can still die of thirst. 
There comes a time when you've got to move from talking about Jesus to inviting him in. Scott, will you come forward, Liz, and help me to close this down? I'd like you all to stand to your feet if you would. This message that I presented to you today is clearly for those of us who call ourselves Christians, those who have indeed received salvation and Jesus Christ we consider Lord of all. It's about us being a part of the Great Commission. Jesus calls all believers to lead others to Christ. He calls all believers to disciple them along their journey. And Jesus clearly showed us here the elements that we must be aware of and prepared for when those encounters exist or happen in our life. But also, in this same story, we find a person who does not know Jesus who ended up knowing him. So really, this message has probably also caught the attention of anyone here who is yet to be in a relationship with Jesus, or maybe if you're watching online and you are not in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if that describes you this morning, all you need to do is put your faith and your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and allow him lordship over your life. You do that by receiving the gift of salvation. And to do that, the Bible says you must believe and confess. You must believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God the Father, that he is the Son of God, that he came to this earth, he lived a holy and perfect life, and he died a horrendous death on the cross, and the blood that he shed was to clean, to wash away, to wipe away your sin. You just have to say that in a form of a prayer. You can do that by praying a simple prayer to the Lord. And when you do that, and you pray those words with sincerity in your heart, you will be saved. The Bible says you will become a new creation. You'll be cleansed of all unrighteousness, and you now become the righteousness of Christ. You are made whole through what Christ Jesus would later do after this story on the cross of Calvary. In a few moments, I'm going to pray, and when I do, I want you to pray yourself. Take this time to invite Jesus to be the Lord of your life. Leave this place knowing that you have received salvation. Turn off your computer screen knowing that you have received salvation. It will be the greatest decision that you will ever make as you receive the greatest gift that you could ever receive, eternal life in the presence of Almighty God. And while I pray, I'm going to ask all of you Christians to pray as well. And I want you to pray specifically about the part that you are to play in the Great Commission. As I've said before, it's not called the Great Suggestion. It's a commission, and it falls upon every one of us who claims Jesus Christ as Lord. It is our duty. It is our responsibility. It's an expectation that we will speak on behalf of the Lord and direct others towards him. So I'm going to ask you to pray a prayer this morning. It's a bold prayer, especially if you don't want to do this, especially if you're one of those people that have feared these kinds of moments and encounters your entire life. Can I just tell you there is nothing to be afraid of in leading someone to Christ. It is the most beautiful thing that you will ever be a part of, but if you've never been a part of it, you will never know that until you try. 
pray that God would open a door, would give you an opportunity. Chances are you've already had many discussions, informal discussions, building up to this point with other people in your life that you already know. I want you to also pray that God would allow you to see those people who come across your path day by day, week by week, and that you will see them as people who do not know Jesus, that you will see them as a person who is broken, who is desperately in need of Christ's love, and then ask for the courage to lead them to Jesus Christ. I believe, and I've said this many times, that the time is short. And I believe the Church of Jesus Christ has to begin to become very serious about those around us who are lost. It's time for us as a people to boldly speak of Christ's love, to tell them about our relationship with our Lord and Savior and how he loves them deeply and how his desire is to have a relationship with them. And then you tell them what your relationship with Christ has meant to you and the strength and the power and the understanding that it provides for you to navigate through your life every single day. I'm gonna open this altar. If anybody would wanna come to this altar and pray, you're free to do that. You can come now or you can come while I pray. But I'd like all the rest of you, if you would, to please bow your heads in prayer with me. Precious Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you that everything we ever need to know about serving you is written for us by example in most cases, as is clear in the story of with you, the woman at the well. You had to break down barriers, Lord, to get through to her, but you did. And I know that many people are thinking right now in their head, yeah, but he's Jesus and I'm David Blythe. Father, I pray that you would wipe those kinds of thoughts from our brain, just wipe them from our existence. As the righteousness of Christ, as, inhabit, as, as vessels of which the Holy Spirit inhabits, we have the same ability and we have the same power that is granted to us through our salvation and through the Holy Spirit to make effective pleas to people just like Jesus did. Oh God, that you would convince us of that that you would show us that this is not a fearful thing, but this is something that you've called us to do. And in obedience to you, Father, we're going to do it. Does everybody we talk to gonna become a Christian? No, but our job is not to save them. Our job is to bring them to you so that you can save them. God, would you make that our hearts cry? Would you take away those fears? Would you help us to get to a place where we look forward and even ask for those divine appointments in our life and that we would not be afraid to get off course and to go where you ask us to go and to talk to who you ask us to talk to even though we may not fully understand why but we know that you are directing us there and you will make that eminently clear once we arrive and not only will you make it clear God but you will give us the words to speak you promised us you would so God make us instruments of your love Help us not to get caught up into what I see going on in our world today, and that is Christians being a bunch of angry people towards those who do not know you. Yes, we are angry with their sin. We are angry with the direction they are taking our country. But God, we can't be angry with a lost person because they have yet to know the truth of who you are. 
and but for the grace of God, that's us. But we had the sense to cry out to you and to realize in our flaws and our failures and in our sin that you could save us and you could make us new creations and you did. And we're not perfect, Lord, but we're forgiven and we're redeemed. And we look at life in a different way. But let us not vilify those who don't think like we think and believe like we believe, but that we would see them as a broken child who needs the love of Christ. It's not us against them. We're all to be one family. We're all to be the family of God, and that is why you want us to share your goodness with others. So God, make it true in our hearts. Let us be active in sharing your goodness with other people. And Lord, for those watching online or here today who don't know you, I pray that they would have the courage to pray a simple prayer of confession, acknowledging that you are the Son of God, acknowledging that you are the only way to the Father, asking for forgiveness of sin, and receiving you as Lord and Savior. And Lord, if that describes anyone in here today or online, that they would reach out, come and talk to me after the service so we can get them involved in our discipleship classes to help them on their journey, because that's what you've called us to do. And Lord, as we go our separate ways today, I pray that your Holy Spirit would guide and direct our steps, the places we go, the things we do, the conversations that we have, that these conversations would build up, it would not tear down. I ask that you'd make us bright lights shining in a very dark world. Let your love permeate us in such a way that people would recognize it and they would come to us and boom, the door opens. And that we would have the courage to walk through that door and to share your goodness with them. I ask that you keep us safe from sickness and disease, from COVID, from, from all these things that could befall us. I ask that you would keep us safe from accidents, Lord, until we gather together again so we can join together as a church family. And as you said in the word today, that we would come to worship you in spirit and in truth. Thank you for this day. Thank you for the presence of your spirit. Thank you for the power of your word. Father, let it become a part of who we are. Let us live it out, I ask, in the precious and holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen. Thank you for being here today.